Let's pray and ask God to help us as we listen to him speak. Our loving Father, we do thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us in your word. And so we pray that as we uh, study it tonight, we pray that you will help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. We pray that you will help us to know the strength he gives. We pray that you will help us to see the beauty of his greatness. We pray that you will help us to seek to live a life like his, full of deep and real humility for your glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, well, as we've heard so far tonight, we begin a season in the kind of traditional church calendar that is called Advent. And as Rich said, it's, it's kind of like, it's a period where we put ourselves in the shoes of the people, God's people in the Old Testament, as they looked forward and hoped that a Messiah would come. And so we kind of are sort of looking forward to the birth of Jesus. But we're also, in Advent, looking forward to Jesus' return. And so for these next four weeks, we're going to be doing this sermon series for Advent, where we're going to look at four different passages where the Apostle Paul talks about how Jesus' coming changed the world. And in particular, uh, how Jesus' coming changed the world to bring great joy. Joy is our theme, our kind of overarching theme this Advent and this Christmas. And it's a really important uh, theme for us. Because we live in a world where everyone longs to be happy. You know, happiness in our world is the ultimate aspiration. Uh, we're constantly, you know, if you're, on, you're online or whatever, you're constantly um, kind of peppered with ads that are promising you happiness in all sorts of different ways. Um, I don't know what sort of ads you get, but, you know, maybe it's kind of self-help books or courses that you can go on or consumer goods that you might want to buy or exotic holiday destinations and they're all there promising happiness Uh, and yet as we look around it seems that our world isn't very happy Uh, we look around and we see our politicians often behaving like buffoons i've never got to use that word in a sermon before but hey Uh, we see you know we we constantly read reports of of crime and violence Uh, we um see institutions that in our society were once trusted like churches and banks kind of being exposed as corrupt and untrustworthy Uh, and as a society we we see our society kind of get up get caught up more and more embracing uh, a more individualistic way of life and so our world doesn't seem to be getting happier at all so what is the way to find happiness or true joy Well, as we turn to this passage that we've just read in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says something very surprising. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all because he says that it is humility that brings true joy. Uh, It's important, of course, to understand what he means about humility. uh, When he talks about humility, sometimes we confuse humility with modesty. Uh, modesty, I think, is about what you don't do. It's about being self-restrained. So it's, it's kind of, if you're a modest person, you don't brag. You don't big note yourself. You're not full of yourself, right? That's modesty. Humility is actually something a whole lot bigger than that. 
Uh, and so there's a guy, John Dixon, he's an Anglican minister, a historian, you might have heard of him. He lectures at Macquarie Uni, he writes books. He's written an excellent book all about humility. It's got a fancy title, Humilitas, which apparently is Latin, but I don't know Latin, so I'll take his word for it. And this is how he defines what humility is. He says, humility is the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, you could say that the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in the service of others. Do you see the difference? Modesty is kind of about what you don't do. It's like not bragging. Humility is about what you do do. It's about how you use your power to serve others. But how could that kind of humility change the world? How does humility possibly bring joy? That's what we're trying to wrestle with tonight. And so we're going to have a look at what Paul says about it in this passage from Philippians chapter 2. Three points, just for a change. Uh, We're going to think about the need for humility, the revolution of humility, and then finally the end, kind of like the end goal of humility is what that point's about. So, do you have a Bible in front of you? Yeah? It'd be good to have it open at Philippians chapter 2 and follow along. Paul begins um, chapter 2 of Philippians by writing this. He says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, Paul's writing to Christians in a city called Philippi. Uh, You can see it up there on the map. It's kind of in, it was part of the Roman Empire. It was in Macedonia. Um, It's, I think that's now in modern day Greece. And um, so you can see sort of Greece down there to the south. Um, And Paul was the one that planted the church in Philippi. It's really clear from the way that he writes this letter as you read through it that he's, he's got a great deal of affection for the Philippian Christians. He really cares for them and he's really hopeful for them. And you get a sense of that when he says, make my joy complete there in verse 2. But also as he says, make my joy complete, you also get a sense that there's something wrong, there's something lacking. Uh, You get a sense that maybe the church in Philippi is in danger of being torn apart. And as we read through the letter, we find that actually, yeah, there is conflict in the church. Paul mentions in chapter 4 these two fabulous women who he holds in high regard he says these women are fellow workers in the gospel with me and yet it seems like they're in conflict with each other and so you get this sense that in this church there's a danger that uh, it's going to be torn apart at the seams because of this conflict that's taking place and so in these first two verses if you you know there were lots of big words in there and it was kind of heavy and stuff if you didn't understand what Paul is saying he's basically saying stick together Okay, if, if you know that Jesus has brought you together and he's there encouraging you and comforting you and helping you, then stick together, okay? Um, if he's brought you together, don't tear each other apart. That's what he's saying. And so you can get the sense of that, can't you? As you start to break it down, notice all those words that he uses. There's a pattern there in verse 2. He says, be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. They're all words about unity aren't they same same accord which means harmony and one okay he's saying stick together because that's what christ has called you together to do so how do you heal divisions how do you mend 
broken relationships to build this kind of unity? It's such an important question, especially in the context of a church. You know, sometimes we irritate each other. Sometimes we hurt each other and disappoint each other and bump up against each other. So, so what, what do we do? Do we just kind of, kind of try to avoid each other from that point on and, or just kind of smile? But Paul says actually there's, there's actually a better way forward. And so this is what he says. He says the way forward is by being humble. It requires humility to heal divisions. So he, said, he writes this in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, you're all sitting there half asleep, it's a bit warm, and I'm just raving on about humility and stuff, and you're just thinking, who cares, what's the point? In Paul's day, this was totally shocking, okay? It made no sense whatsoever, because Paul's culture, which was the ancient Greek culture, it was founded on this thing called philotomia. You know that, philotomia? Yeah, no, that's the Greek word. And, and what it means is love of honor. Philo is love. Tamia is about honor. And so the whole culture was like this. This is what the Oxford Dictionary says about Philo Tamia. It says the pursuit of honor, tangible or intangible, was a constant of elite behavior throughout the Greco-Roman antiquity. It's saying in the olden days, ancient Greece in the Roman Empire, the elites the most powerful and important people were caught up in this pursuit, this trying to get honor for themselves. They lived for the love of honor. John Dixon explains it. Uh, he says, honor was universally regarded as the ultimate asset for human beings and shame was the ultimate deficit. Much of life revolved around ensuring you and your family received public honor and avoided public shame. See, this is all about how you look to other people. This is all about having your merits and your strengths recognized and praised. That's what honor's about. Being seen to be worthy. Or the thing that you want to avoid is not having your strengths and assets and everything else recognized and praised. In fact, you know, being pulled down, being seen as unworthy. That's about shame. And so people in Paul's day, in, in the Roman Empire, it was just common for people to boast about their achievements. Now we're Aussies, and so we're not too keen on people boasting. Um, that's actually because of what we're going to hear about tonight. Our culture has changed. But in Paul's day, it was normal for people to boast. If you were good at something, you would let everyone know, because that's how you would gain honor and that's how you would maintain your position in the world, your social status. You would maintain it by parading all your achievements. You know, so if you're the smartest kid at school, it, it would just be normal for you to be telling everyone about the marks you got in your exams, right? Or if you, you know, got a big promotion at work, it would just be normal for you to make sure everyone in your workplace found out about your big pay rise or your promotion. That's just how it worked. It was about the love of honor. There's a really famous example of this. You might have heard of a guy called uh, Augustus. Yeah? He wrote this document called, very humbly, uh, The Achievements of Divine Augustus. 
okay? And what he did was he got a list of all his many achievements, 35 different areas of achievement, military achievements, building projects, awards he'd received, all these achievements written down onto bronze tablets, so I suppose that's going to last a long time, to be put on his mausoleum when he died, like his grave, and then also to be distributed throughout the empire. So I'll give you a brief taste of the kind of things he, he said in this. He said things like, his first one, at age, uh, it's very condensed, it was 2,500 words, so about as long as my sermon. Um, at age 19, on my own responsibility and at my own expense, I raised an army with which I successfully championed the liberty of the republic when it was oppressed by the tyranny of a faction. Pretty good. Yeah, this guy's great, right? Uh, point 15. So that we've missed, we're skipping 13 in between here. Point 15. To each member of the Roman plebs, I paid under my father's will 300 sesterces, which is apparently two months' wages. These largesses of mine never reached fewer than 250,000 people. So he's saying, I doled out so much money. Point 22, I gave three gladiatorial games in my own name and five in the name of my sons and grandsons. At these games, some 10,000 men took part in combat. Like, I'm the guy who kind of puts on all the shows for everyone and keeps everyone entertained. Point 25, I made the sea peaceful and freed it of pirates. In that war, I captured about 30,000 slaves. You, you see what he's, he's, he's kind of telling everyone about all the great stuff he's done, how great he is. And then finally he says, I love this one. Oh, this is point 34. I don't know, 35. 34. I transferred the republic from my power to the power of the Senate and the people of Rome. For this service of mine, I was named Augustus by the de decree of the Senate. And he goes on to list all these honors that he received. He says, on account of my courage, my clemency, my justice and my piety. After this time, I excelled in all influence. Just imagine hanging out with this guy, right? We find it a little bit hard to take. But in, in ancient Greek culture, this was just how life worked. People used their power in order to win praise. You might find people doing all sorts of generous things like Augustus here, but they'd be doing them in order to get honour for themselves. It was philotomia, the love of honour, and especially the elite. Now, it's no surprise that in that kind of context, imagine living in a world like that, you know, shame is to be avoided at all costs, and so humility doesn't seem very appealing at all. Because humility for the Greeks... Um, the word, their, their word for humility, to painos, literally means low to the ground. It's about lowering yourself instead of lifting yourself up. And so it was the idea of, really the idea of being humiliated. It, it was the opposite of gaining in honor. It was the idea of being shamed. And so the idea that you would deliberately lower yourself to the ground for the sake of someone else, to be humble made absolutely no sense at all. So just imagine here, Paul's letter, imagine if someone on the streets of Philippi gets hold of this letter, it would have just sent shockwaves through the city because Paul is saying that this thing, which is the essence of life in the Roman Empire, is actually the reason communities are being torn apart. What they consider a virtue, something to aspire to, 
Paul calls a conceit. Conceit. What's that mean? What's a conceit? If someone's conceited, if we say they're so conceited, what do we mean? We mean they're full of themselves. Yeah? They're we could phrase it even a bit more rudely than that, but we might be being recorded, so I won't. They're full of themselves. Okay? But the word Paul uses, it's got the same kind of idea in a way, but actually it's also a little bit different. Um, his word he uses is this Greek word, kenodoxia. And it's made up of two words, which mean keno means empty. And doxa is about glory. And so whereas we think of conceited as about being full of yourself, Paul thinks of it as being empty of glory. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if this is the way you live your life, if you live your life for yourself with selfish ambition, seeking after honor, questing for self-glory, then that is an empty way to live. It is not glorious at all. It destroys relationships and tears communities apart. And when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. If you are in a community of people where people are really obsessed with how other people think of them, with their, with they're so determined to impress and to show how good they are, then that will be a very brittle and fragile community. Okay? That was the case in the ancient world, but we know that that is true of our world as well. And we see how this plays out, don't we? We see how it plays out when, when people are kind of living for their own self-interest. Or as Paul puts it, driven by their selfish ambition. So, what could change a world that lives for empty glory? The answer might surprise you. Brings us to our second point. In verses 5 to 8, Paul describes the thing that can change a world that lives for empty glory. He says the only thing that can change a world of empty glory is the most radical act of humility that we have ever seen. And so in verses 5 to 8, he calls the Philippians to take their lead, not from their honor-loving culture, but from their humble king. So have a look. If you've got your Bibles there, don't fall asleep. Have a look. Verse 5, see what he writes? He says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. There's that idea of emptied again. Now, Paul is saying, here is a man who loved something more than he loved his own honor. And because he did that, he actually turned ancient Greek culture upside down. You know, instead of being driven by selfish ambition that tries to lift itself up to glory, this man doesn't have to lift himself up because he starts at the very highest point. His title Christ there means that he's the king, and not just any king, he's the king like God is king. You see that? Paul says he's made of the same stuff as God. He is equal to God himself. It is impossible to get any higher than that. Okay? He's at the pinnacle. He starts at the very highest point. Yeah? 
And yet, what does he do? Paul says, instead of using his glory for his own gain, exploiting it for honor, he empties himself of glory and he lowers himself all the way to the ground. And that's what happened when Jesus was born, isn't it? The God of heaven lowered himself literally all the way to the ground, to the earth, to become one of us. Now that is humility. And for Jesus, it wasn't just a nice idea. No, he kept teaching his followers that he came to be a servant and he lived it out day after day. Just remember that scene when his disciples are all gathered around a table sharing a meal and their great teacher, their important, glorious leader takes off his outer robe and he wraps it around his waist and suddenly now he looks like a lowly servant and he bends to the ground and he washes their feet. It was outrageous humility. It would have horrified both ancient Greeks and Jews. Jesus lowered himself to the ground. But Paul says he went even further than that. He went to the very lowest point of human experience. See that in verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now we're so used to hearing about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it's kind of very easy to take it for granted. But in the ancient world, there was no place lower than this. You know, there were three official methods of capital punishment in the ancient world, uh, in the Roman Empire. Of all three, crucifixion was considered to be by far the most shameful and the worst. It was worse than decapitation. It was even worse than being burned alive. It was reserved for slaves and political rebels. And what would happen is a person who was going to be crucified, they would first be tortured. They'd be whipped with um, the whips, the cords would be uh, embedded with glass or metal. And so they'd already be beaten up well before they were hung on the cross where they would die in public of asphyxiation. Uh, there was a, a, a philosopher around at the same time as Paul. He, he, he said this about crucifixion, um, almost the same time that Paul was writing his letter to the Philippians. He's talking about the different ways to die. And he said, can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting his life drop by drop rather than expiring once for all? I think he would have many excuses for dying before mounting the cross. He's saying it is the worst of the worst. It is the most shameful way to die. It was humility in the sense of being humiliated. And so for ancient Greeks, it was inconceivable. Not, I mean, it was already hard enough to believe that a God would become one of us, take on flesh. It was even more conceivable that a God would choose to die like this. And that's what's behind this ancient piece of graffiti. You might have seen it before. Um, The original kind of is on the left-hand side, and the right-hand side kind of makes the picture look a bit clearer so you can see what it's supposed to be. And um, they think that this was... It's a very crude piece of graffiti. It kind of looks like a kindergarten's writing, really, doesn't it? And they think that it was some Roman guards who were holding a Christian called Alex Samenos 
um, prisoner and that they were mocking him for his Christian belief, for believing in a crucified God. And so you can see in the picture there, there's someone being crucified on a cross, but they have a donkey's head to show how foolish, how shameful crucifixion is. And then there's this man, Alexamenos, below, who is has his, holding his hand up in worship. And they say, it says at the bottom, Alexamenos worships his God. See, in ancient Greek culture, honor was proof of merit. It was proof that you were worthy. Shame was proof that you were worthless. And so for ancient Greeks, the shame of crucifixion was proof that Jesus wasn't worthy to be called God. And yet somehow, this, the, this humiliation, this humility had the power to blow the Greeks' love of honour apart. Because as more and more people heard about the way that Jesus died, they came to see his death on a cross. You know, not as, a, not, not as proof that Jesus wasn't great, but as proof that they'd misunderstood what it means to be great. They could see that there is nothing more glorious than this, that a God would lower himself to lift us up. Nothing more glorious, that Jesus, full of glory, would empty himself of glory. For the sake of those chasing after empty glory, to make us truly glorious. Do you see what a revolution this was? What seemed utterly foolish for Greeks has become truly glorious for us. And so in Jesus, God has marked out a new way of life, a new trajectory, instead of the trajectory starting low and trying to reach up to grab hold of honour. No, we find a glory that comes down to lift us up. Do you see? In Jesus, we see that God foregoes status and deploys resources and uses influence. He holds power to serve us, to go back to our original definition. And this is the power which transforms the world by redirecting our love to Christ. So how does this story end? The end of humility? Well, Paul makes it very clear how Jesus' story ends. Have a look at it there in Philippians chapter 2. Have a look down at verses 9 to 11. How does humility end? For Jesus, it ends in glory. His great act of humility ends with him being lifted up. God raises him from the dead and he exalts him. And that's not actually any great surprise to us. For those of us who have read through the Bible, actually, what kind of God do we find? We constantly find a God who chooses the humble and raises them high, who chooses the weak and makes them strong, who heals our brokenness and strife and gives us life. That's what we're going to sing in a minute. See, the God that we meet in Scripture is not the distant God of the ancient Greeks. He's not the impersonal sort of life force of new age spirituality. 
He's not the modern therapeutic God who helps those who help themselves. And he's not the angry God of the angry atheists. No, the God we meet in scripture is the God who lowers himself to the ground so he can lift up the lowly. And this is where humility ends. Not in the dirt, not on the cross, but on a throne. Paul says Jesus is lifted up and God gives him a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, not Augustus, not Caesar, is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is where humility ends for Jesus. In glory. And so that is where humility ends for us. For all who bow their knee to this humble king, for all who rejoice in the glory of the one who gave up his glory for us, we are brought with Jesus, by Jesus, into the glory of God the Father. And that's all beautiful and lots of big ideas and floating around up here. What does that actually kind of mean? Does it change the way we live? Paul says it does. That's why he's talking about encouragement that comes from knowing Jesus at the start and consolation, comfort. That's why he talks about the compassion that we experience in Jesus and and the sharing, the fellowship, the community that we have together. He's saying this brings a whole different way to live your life a way that will strengthen you in the hard times because you are living to serve a God who lives to serve you. This can change the way you live your life. If you know that God has lifted you up, then you don't have to try to live your life lifting yourself up all the time. If you know God has given you a new name, You don't have to try to live life making a name for yourself. You know, if you know that you have been lifted up by God, then you can forgo status. You can use your resources and your influence to serve others. If you know God has lifted you up and you're secure in that, then you can actually lower yourself. You can can move into those difficult situations that are really awkward and uncomfortable. You know, get alongside someone who's just really unpopular or a little bit hard to be around. You can actually walk alongside them, down with them, because you know God has lifted you up. And so you can do that without having to worry. You don't have to worry about your reputation. You don't have to worry about kind of looking like a fool. Because you know how God looks at you. You can do it without worrying about your comfort as well. Like it might be awkward and difficult to have some of those conversations or to to care for someone who is hard to care for, but you don't have to worry about your comfort because you know that God will comfort you. You don't have to worry about being humiliated when you're humble because God will raise you up. So to finish, I just want to ask, how do we get this? How do we get this humility? How can we be more humble? Paul says, regard others as better than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And it sounds a little bit as if he's saying, you've got to put yourself down. You've got to think worse of yourself, less of yourself. Have a low self-esteem, that's the secret. 
Do you think that's what he's saying? No, that's not what he means. The key to humility is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. There's a writer, uh, Peter Wiener, who wrote an article in the New York Times called The Quiet Power of Humility, and he captures this beautifully. He says, the mark of genuine humility is not self-abasement, putting yourself down, as much as self-forgetting, which in turn allows us to take an intense interest in the lives of others. A very famous writer, C.S. Lewis, said something similar. He said, a truly humble person isn't concerned about appearing humble. They're not trying to look humble. He says he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And so the way to get more humble isn't to try to look humble. No, the way to get more humble is to look at the one who is truly humble and to see how beautiful that is. Because we're shaped by the things that we love. And so the more that you study and look at and appreciate and enjoy the humility of Jesus, the more you will become like that. So that's what Paul kind of says at the end. You can see there, he says, the end of humility is what? At the very end of the passage we read, we're almost finished, so you can wake up. The end of the passage there, he says, the end of humility is gladness and joy. See that? He says to them in verse 17, even if I'm being poured out, even if I'm being emptied, he's saying, even if I'm kind of sacrificing my life for you, he says, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you and in the same way, you must be glad and rejoice with me. Because the end of humility is joy. As we use our power to serve each other, as we use our power to walk together, as we use our power to build each other up. It's through humility that we find this joy. So we're going to sing about that now.